0: So I'm happy to be back Spirit Rock after traveling It's always great to come home Be back in Woodacre And back to our own Garden and our own Bed (laughs) All those those kind of things It was great to travel as well Teach retreats in Europe And do some teaching on the East Coast Um, So when I come back and have the chance to be with you all and to sit together again as we have some of us over many years, um, it seems useful, almost like starting over again, to reflect on what is the purpose of our coming together to meditate and to practice as, as we have this evening. And more than anything else, and one may have heard of all different kinds of spiritual teachings and possibilities and transformations and, you know, chakras and postures and, and uh, visions and mystical things. I see meditation not so much as the um, forum to create some special experience, but rather as the place to remember who we really are, to come back to a knowing that is there in us as our birthright, our true nature, or what's sometimes called our Buddha nature. So when we sit, as we have this evening, and feel our breath, and let the sensations of the body, the feelings of the heart, the thoughts and images rise and fall, and rest in a spaciousness that can be with those, in a certain way it's just returning back to a center and an understanding that's always within us. My teacher Ajahn Chah referred to this uh, as this wisdom understanding in us, as awakening within us the one who knows. Um, And the one who knows is this natural wisdom, if you will, that comes simply through our being present, through our paying attention. It is, as Dogen Zenji said, not far away, it is nearer than near what we seek. Or the Sufi poet Rumi put it this way he said, pay regular visits to yourself. So when we sit, there's a quieting of the mind, a attending to the present and opening of the heart. And in that, a returning to this one who knows. I'd like to speak about that tonight, but I think one of the best ways to understand the one who knows is to look at the one who forgets. (laughs) It's an amazing and actually quite wondrous thing, forgetfulness and sleep. I mean, on this earth, it's the most mysterious thing. Most animals and human beings spend a certain portion of the day unconscious, more or less, lying there, immobile, and often, at least humans, and it sure looks like dogs and cats too, if you watch the little dogs' paws and ooh, in their dreams and stuff, having visions and images of some entire other world. And it is strange that we should, you know, move around and everything seems very real to us and then for one-third of our time lie down, close our eyes, and completely lose this world and go someplace else. And that world, when we're in, it seems very real, that dream world. Of course, when we wake up, it disappears. But when we go to sleep, this one disappears too, doesn't it? Um, Why do we sleep? Why do creatures on this earth... Lie down and go unconscious for a while. Nobody really knows. Um, There's something, I mean, obviously some creatures like theirs who hibernate do it for long periods of time. Sometimes I'm kind of envious of that, a long map. So there's this first mystery that we're awake and then we're unconscious and then we're awake again all the time. And we don't think about it, we just take it for granted. But it's really strange. Why should that be? So we have this one kind of sleep that's very obvious to us. And it's actually precious if it gets disrupted. You know very well. New parents know a lot about that. But there's a second sleep that's more important to our conversation. And that is the waking spell that we live under much of the time. It's the sleep of automatic living where you drive your car someplace and pull up and put on the parking brake and open the door to step out and then you realize you have no idea who drove the car there or where you were you just got there somehow completely on automatic pilot and we've all had that experience but it's not just automatic pilot in driving it's automatic pilot in living we can eat a meal and kind of wake up afterward oh what did i eat what was that was going on there Or it can happen in our parenting. You know, we're just going along with our children, and all of a sudden out comes the voice of our father or mother, right? And we kind of wake up and say, oh, I never meant... In fact, I said I would never say something like that. (laughs) And there it comes. Um, We live in this forgetfulness as if we were separate, as if we were... Isolated from the rest of the world like some little monad going around and fulfilling our business. Um, and in this forgetfulness, sometimes also called the the desire body or the de- body of fear, um, we forget a, a very fundamental fact, which is that um, we will die. Just like sleep, which is mysterious, death is another of the great mysteries. And as Don Juan said, it's only because death is stalking us that life is so incredible and fantastic and mysterious. Or as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, um, at one point Krishna and Arjuna are talking and uh, Arjuna says to uh, Lord Krishna, what are the great wonders that you've seen of this earth? And Lord Krishna says, well, the most wondrous thing of all on this earth is human beings who can see those all around them headed toward death and still believe it won't happen to me. (laughs) So there's the kind of automatic living, automatic pilot forgetting the brevity of life. Um, Now sleep has its benefits. There's a letting go, a renewal, a rest, a forgiving and forgetting that's really wonderful. Um, And it's respected in Buddhist practice. Um, In certain traditions, sleep is called the poor man's nirvana. Right? It's that, you know, take what you can get, basically. It's wonderful. And the sleep of not paying attention is also important for the sorrows of our life. The traumas of it. Um, Emily Dickinson wrote one verse. She said, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and then covers the abyss with trance so memory can step across as within a swoon. A pain so utter it swallows substance up and covers the abyss with trance. And there's some way at times when we need that. We need a relief. We need to let go. The letting go, the sleep, the forgetting, lets us be fresh again. It's like the Christian Desert Fathers where one young novice went in to see the abbot one day and said, this other young monk near me, he's always falling asleep in our prayers. Should I pinch him to wake him up so that he can say his prayers more earnestly like the rest of us. And the abbot said, no, if he's sleepy, I would put his head on your knee and let him sleep. Um, That's how I would respond to it. So the idea isn't so much that we judge sleepiness. Sleep is beautiful. Even temporarily forgetting is important. But quite easily, it slips into another element of delusion and denial. We live in what some have called the addicted society, you know, whether it's television or um, wine or consumerism or just keeping ourselves busy all the time. Sigmund Freud put it this way, he said, life as we find it is too hard for us, it entails too much pain, Too many disappointments, impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliative remedies. There are perhaps three of these means. Powerful diversions of interest, which lead us to care less about our miseries. Substitute gratifications, which lessen them. And intoxicating substances, which make us insensitive to them. Something of this kind seems indispensable. Old Sigmund, cheerful fellow that he was, right? But there is a kind of truth to what he says um, because there's so much that's put in our advertising and in our culture as if everything was always going to stay young and everything will be beautiful and not only that, you'll win the lottery on the way when the truth is you have as much chance to win the lottery as them sending it to you by accident in the mail, probably. Right. My good friend and, and fellow teacher, Larry Rosenberg, just completed a book on uh, living uh, with an awareness of death to bring uh, real consciousness to our life, aging and death. And he's 65 years old now, and he tells this story near the beginning of the book. He said, I am, uh, I've really taken good care of myself, and he does look very good. I do yoga, I jog and run. Um, you know, I exercise. I, I don't know what else he does. He climbs mountains or ocean kayaks or things like that. Um, he watches his diet. He's a, also a very kind of bright energy, a lovely being. And he said, I was riding home on the um, Boston subway back to Cambridge, Insight Meditation Society, where I live, um, some not so long ago. And I back from a dentist appointment, he said, And I was sitting there, or standing there on the subway, holding on, and all of a sudden the woman in the seat in front of me uh, got up to get out of the car. Um, And so I sat down, um, this young woman. And then I noticed as I was sitting there that she didn't leave the car. She just stood (laughs) there for a while, and one stop went by, and another stop went by, and another. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me that she had gotten up to give me her seat. He said, and it was a complete shock. He said, I am the person who gets up to give other people his seat. I am not the old guy, you know. It's okay, old timer here, you can have a seat, sit down. I am not the person that people get up and give their seat to. So we have this amazing capacity to pretend. (laughs) You've heard these, I'm sure. These are actual statements from an insurance company um, uh, driving accident reports. Um, Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. (laughs) Or I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. (laughs) I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. Yes, my car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. (laughs) An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. (laughs) The telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front of my car. I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. (laughs) So denial... And forgetfulness is this mysterious, wonderful quality, and we have it so much. In fact, our universe, our human separate universe, is constructed of one thing, forgetfulness. Emerson wrote about us being born, trailing clouds of glory, and in the Hindu tradition, the child in the womb sings, let me remember who I am, and then its first song after birth is, "O oh Lord... I have forgotten already. (laughs) And Alan Watts, who wrote in one of his books entitled The Taboo Against Knowing Who We Really Are, wrote about how the society colludes in this taboo, the ultimate game of hide-and-seek, of the divine or of uh, universal consciousness pretending that we're actually separate from one another, as if it were true. And even religion can kind of collaborate or corroborate in this ruse. Um, Joseph Campbell called a lot of religion an inoculation against the true mystery. You know, the kind of outer forms of religious rituals that make us feel like, well, now everything's okay. I've been to church or been to the Buddhist meditation center or been to temple or whatever it is and everything will be all right. And in a way, we can even use our spiritual practice to not look at the way things are. Remember the story of the old black man who was very devout and went to church in his neighborhood for years and years and years. Um, and then one day, he received notice that his home was going to be torn down for so-called urban renewal and had to move and was given... Um, some housing in a whole other part of the city which was almost entirely a white neighborhood, much more kind of fancier. Um, But since he was a pious person, pious man, he decided, well, he's going to go to church. So there's this great big church at the end of the block and he started to go into the church and go there regularly. One day he went up to the minister after being there over a period of time and talked to him about becoming a member of the church And the minister listened to him and went back and forth and kind of hemmed and hawed. He got this little feeling maybe somehow he wasn't completely welcome in this fancy church. So at the end of the conversation, he said, well, you know, um, Reverend, he said, maybe I should just think about it for a bit um, or even pray on it. I like to do that. I like to pray to God and see if I can get some answer for what's the right thing to do in my life. So the minister said, that's all right, you, you know, you should do that. Take your time. So he went back and some weeks later was walking in the, on the street in the neighborhood and ran into the minister. How are you doing? Doing fine. Say, you know, I've been praying about joining the church, been talking to God about it. minister said, oh, you have? He said, yeah, I sure have. minister said, so uh, you know, what have you learned? He said, oh, he said, God said to me, It's no use. He said, I've been trying to get in that same church myself for 35 years. They won't have me either. (laughs) So whether it is the stock market or religious practice, spiritual practice, they all can feed into our delusion dot coms, right? Whatever it is. And when we forget who we are, we get too busy in our lives to awaken, too busy doing and being ourselves and trying to get and accumulate and accomplish and so forth, all of which are good things, until that moment when the doctor calls and said, I have some news for you about your mammogram or about your, you know, Prostate or about the heart pains or about your um, mother or your father or someone that you care about um, or the person who cook parent who calls and said you know you this your father fell and broke his hip or whatever something all of a sudden there you know those phone calls that happen and there's some accident or something that we don't think will happen it's like the minister who walked into the Uh, bar in this little village and saw an awful lot of his uh, churchgoers in there drinking away and got kind of upset and said, you know, stood up and said, listen, all of those who want to go to heaven, you step over here. It's going to take them out of there. And everybody stepped over there except one of his, you know, people. He said, don't you want to go to heaven? And the man said, oh, I thought you were talking about going right now. (laughs) Um, there's a cost to being asleep, to living what Gurdjieff called living mechanically, living like machines to our sleepwalking. Um, One of the costs is that we don't see the people that we're with really deeply. Um, Or when difficulties come we pretend that they're not really there. It's like this couple that came to see me who were decided they were going to get divorced, and I was asking them about it, and they said, oh, it'll be fine for the kids. We're going to live near each other. And I said, it'll be what? Mm-hmm. It'll be fine for the kids? Mm-hmm. And it may have been the right thing. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have gotten divorced. In some cases, it may be the right thing to do. Um, but it's always difficult for children. Um, there's a cost when we don't pay attention. And the cost I've heard in men's retreats, fathers who weep because they weren't really there for their children, or men who weep because their fathers weren't really there for them. There's a cost in materialism if we make our goal primarily that. um, We end up um, forgetting what we're really here for, which isn't to accumulate stuff. And the consumer society that we have, which is so busy, is also society of great isolation. Some of the greatest pain in our culture is loneliness. We have all this stuff, and we don't have the heart connections with one another that you find in most villages in every other simple society in the world. There's a cost because the US is the largest supplier of weapons on the face of the earth. Billions, hundreds of billions of dollars every year. I say this so often. We do it, we don't like to think about it, and we do it so we can import all these things from overseas. And then we wonder why the world isn't so safe. And nobody does anything about it. It's a kind of amazing denial just like the denial of racism or the other injustices of our society. And if the elders, if those who are the elders in the society forget and go to sleep and are only interested in our stock portfolios or our retirement plans or what happens with Social Security and don't pay attention to the injustice and to the uh, problems of the world, then you know whose shoulders it falls on? It falls on our children, and they're the ones that carry the burden that the elders should have and worry about the environment and worry about what the future will be. And it shouldn't be placed on them. The front page of the New York Times on Saturday had a picture from an icebreaker that was just returning from the North Pole, and it showed that there was open water at the North Pole for the first time ever on record. The ice had been 10 to 15 feet thick ever since people had been going there to measure it. But just in case anybody's wondering about global warming, the North Pole doesn't have ice at it anymore. And we kind of go along um, as if everything's okay. A pin shall prick thy finger and thou shall feel it not. Thy tooth shall be extracted, and thou shalt be anesthetized. Or thou shalt be bitten by a mad dog, and injected with serum, and the dog be shot, and neither of you feel any pain. And thou shalt pass a bundle of rags, who cries a quarter, help me, I am homeless. And thou shalt be anesthetized and passed on, or be in the antechamber of a hospital, awaiting birth or death, no matter and peruse the news of the world in the pages in front of thine eyes, famine in Central Africa, latest fashion bikini leaves no strap marks, dioxin, diet cookbook, neo-Nazi outbreak, film star of the year, assassination of the year, and no one thing shall be worse and none better, and thou shalt ingest them all with the painless, smiling, same feeling of have a nice day. So that's the putting ourselves to sleep. And most of you remember the story I tell from Ramdas doing the retreat over in Oakland some years ago on service. And uh, partway through, the woman who stood up and said, "You know, um, every day I go to work and I see the same homeless man and drop some money in his cup, but..." I never really do any more than that. I've never really looked at him. And since this class, I've paid attention and realized I'm afraid to do it. And I was trying to understand why. And then it dawned on me that I couldn't look him in the eye because if I did, I was afraid that the next week he would be sleeping on my living room floor. And so somehow in us, we are afraid that the heart can't bear the sorrows and the the impermanence, the temporality of the world, afraid it will all come into our living room, afraid of our own generosity. This is the one who forgets. But who is the one who knows? Because this fear is not really the truth. When we sit and pay attention in meditation we begin to let ourselves reconnect with this One Who Knows, the awakening of the One Who Knows. And it's very simple. This One Who Knows sees the way things are, sees with the eyes of wisdom, sees with the heart of wisdom. And the One Who Knows, even as we sit in a moment and breathe and thoughts and plans and feelings come and go, recognizes that life is short. It's true. As it says in the Diamond Sutra, thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. This is called the truth of anicca, or impermanence. From Don Juan, death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length, it has always been watching you and it always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and to ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. So the one who knows recognizes that actually we don't know. My teacher Ajahn Chah, people would ask him all kinds of questions about enlightenment, about meditation, about their lives, what they should do, about this and that, and his most common answer was in Thai, the words were maine. And mai na means it's uncertain, isn't it? He would look and smile and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? This is actually the truth. So one Sufi walked in from the desert one day to the Sultan's palace and knocked loudly on the door and asked to see the Sultan and was shown into the room of the Sultan and said, May I stay a night at your motel? Well, the Sultan was really incensed. This is my palace. How dare you insult it in such a way? You know, I will either throw you out or have your head unless you explain yourself. And the Sufi looked at the Sultan and said, So who owned this place before you? And the sultan said, why, my father. And where is he now? He died. And who owned this place before him? Oh, my grandfather. And where is he now? Well, he's died also. And before him, my great-grandfather. He died as well. The Sufi sat for a moment and then looked the sultan in the eye and said... In this place where people lodge for a brief while and move on, did you say it was not a motel? (laughs) To which the sultan bowed and said, yes, you may stay. (laughs) The one who knows sees that life is short and instead of grasping lives in what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. So nice to hear the children playing out in the summer evening, isn't it? The wisdom of insecurity that knows that this is a summer evening that's beautiful. Monday night, the end of August, the sound of the children, it's warm out. And that it happens once this particular evening. No other evening exactly like this. My wife makes a point every time I or my daughter leave the house of saying goodbye to us. Every time. She says, because you never know. You never know. Remember teaching with Stephen Levine, as I had over many years, good friend. And he used to ask people, if you had just a few days left to live, who would you talk to? Who would you call? And what would you say? And why are you waiting? So the one who knows lives in this preciousness of life, sees it short. The one who knows also sees the limits of pleasure. Pleasure is great, and it's just what it is. It's just that much. The Buddha said if it weren't for pleasure, we wouldn't get caught up in things. Yet even in the midst of pleasure, you know it, in the best meal, in the most you know, sensuous occasion, there's that little thought back there, hmm, how can I drag this out? How long will this last? You know, or can I get it again? Because even in its midst, there's the recognition that it doesn't last. you know, And that our happiness can't come from just getting one pleasant experience after another, after another. You run around all the time trying to have one pleasure after another. All you get is tired. Right? It's how it works. Socrates, who lived a very frugal life, yet he loved to go into the marketplace. So one day, one of his... Disciples, his students said, why do you go into the marketplace? And he laughed, he said, so I can see how many things I'm happy without.
1: <laughs>
0: yes, there are pleasures, you know, pleasures of food, pleasures of good companions and love, and, you know, pleasures of travel and wine and good countryside and music and so forth. But in the end, what really matters in this life? What matters is not one pleasure after another, but the love and the generosity of our heart and the integrity with which we live. As Martin Luther King said, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain as if one could. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may, to live in a sacred way. So the one who knows sees the limits of pleasure and chooses to live in a deeper joy, a deeper happiness, than just seeking for outer pleasures. The one who knows in us sees that in this human realm, we cannot escape loss, sorrow or change. Just as we see in Nietzsche, we also see Dukkha. It's the truth. What's called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows making up human life. The unspeakable beauty and the ocean of tears. Two nights ago, we had a candlelight march through the village of Woodacre for more than a hundred people to bring a spirit of healing and peace back because there had been these two people who were murdered um, as they slept in Woodacre. And Woodacre's a very kind of open-hearted community, all of San Geronimo Valley. People know one another and trust one another, and we don't tend to lock things up. We really tend to have a very open community. And we also know and need to know that it's not just that this happened in Woodacre, but it happens in this, in this crazy society and in you know, the face of some of the great injustice of society in some places very often. But it felt important not only to acknowledge the truth of what happened, but also to answer it somehow, with uh, with this, with our spirit and with our heart. So we came together, and one gospel singer from Forest Knowles sang songs, and we made an altar and a shrine, and people spoke of those who knew, those who'd been killed, and those who were just deeply touched by it and affected by it in our neighborhood and community. And then we walked through the whole village with our candles and up to the house where it happened and made prayers and blessings and left uh, uh, stones that had blessings written on them all around the home of the people who still live there. The one who knows is able to see the world as it is and understands that there is birth and there is death. There's light and dark and gain and loss and praise and blame, and they change ceaselessly. That our life is a river never to repeat itself, always new. People come into spiritual practice and think, well, maybe if I meditate, then everything will be all right and it won't change. And I tell the story in this, one chapter in a path with heart of the great Tibetan teacher Lama Yeshe, very wonderful and amazing being who had um, been sent to went to the hospital to the ICU for um, severe heart problems Um, and he wrote this kind of secret letter initially out to one of his dearest Dharma brothers Describing how difficult it was for him as a meditation master and lama, after 41 days in the intensive care unit, ceaseless injections, day and night, people coming to visit me. He said, After 41 days, it's as if my body became the Lord, I've become the Lord of the cemetery, my mind like that of an anti-God, and my speech like the barkings of an old mad dog. I found it so difficult to meditate in this circumstance, and it took me weeks after that, he said, before I could come back and stabilize my mind. This is a great meditation teacher. So the one who knows sees that human life has joy and sorrow and gain and loss, and it is the truth of this existence, and finds in the midst of this a capacity for spaciousness and wisdom anyway. To see this truth, to see what Ajahn Jemnian called the holy truth of suffering, um, is what touches the heart and allows it to be truly free. It teaches us what freedom means. The one who knows rests in this spacious awareness, in a knowing heart. The one who knows rests in mindfulness. And from this there comes a a shift of identity from the wisdom heart, we see that this is a dance. We are all part of this all too brief dance. A poem I love from Juan Ramon Jimenez called Yo No Soy Yo. I am not I, he writes. I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see. Whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. And the one who will remain standing when I die. The one who knows rests in this deeper identity. In our waking sleep, in the kind of day-to-day busyness where we forget, the kind of survival, it's easy to lose our goodwill, our spirit, our joy, to contract into the body of fear, the small sense of self. And when we don't remember the first noble truth of the Buddha, that life has suffering, As much as it has joy, that it's woven into the fabric of our life, then we struggle and we blame them or it, you know, the government, or our spouse, or lover, or the enemy, the conservatives, or the liberals, or the republicans, or the democrats, or all of them, the politicians, or the Russians, or the Muslims, or whoever it happens to be on our list. Or if we don't blame them, we blame ourselves, and there's guilt and there's shame and it's our fault and we did something wrong and that's why there's sorrow in the world. And it'll always be that way. But there's another reality for the heart that knows. As the Ojibwe Indians say, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. The one who knows meets this changing world of joy and sorrow with forgiveness, with a sense of compassion and freedom in spite of its sorrows. This is from Ruth Carter Stapleton, sister to Jimmy Carter. She says, whatever we cannot forgive, we are doomed to one one day live again. The person who refused to forgive the gossip eventually becomes a gossip. The one who cannot forgive a betrayal becomes a betrayer. The reason for this is that the inability to forgive a frailty in another person indicates that we have the same conditioning in us, the same lack of mercy for ourselves. If we had forgiven the weakness in another, the act of forgiveness would act as a healing An antidote, a release of the weakness in our own heart. The one who knows looks at this world as it is and sees it with so much tenderness to pray, as the Tibetan nuns say, to pray for the enemy, to pray for those who committed the murders and for their spirits or their souls, for the torture that they must live with now. The one who knows realizes it's never too late In this moment, any moment, we can forgive, we can love, we can let go. It's never too late. This wisdom heart that knows, sees how much we are all interconnected, how we need each other. Whatever befalls the earth, befalls the sons and daughters of the earth, Chief Seattle says. And no one can do it alone. No one exists alone. We need the support of one another in every way. I mean, we have the same last name as the rainforest and the redwood trees. They breathe together with us. This is the story of a Chinese dissident, Mr. Liu Qing who served 11 years in Weinan No. 2 prison in Shaanxi province. And during this time, Mr. Liu was forced to sit on a hard (laughs) stool 8 inches high without any movement 10 hours a day. And if he moved or talked to the other prisoners, he was beaten. To end his suffering and assure a successful future, is what they called it, All he had to do was to simply sign a statement without naming others, saying that he had made mistakes in his thinking. A confession. Against all odds, for eleven years Mr. Liu refused to sign this confession. What kept him alive? When he was asked afterward how he did this, he said, as soon as he contemplated the possibility of signing after days of endless suffering, He saw before him the faces of his family and friends and the community that he loved, and he knew he could not sign. And if it was there in his heart far away for all those years in prison, you know it's there for all of us. What we love, we carry with us inside. And it doesn't have to be these great things, you know, this heart of wisdom simply can respond from the place of our deepest values. Baba wrote, The scope of service is not limited to great gestures and heroic acts and huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, though there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things, and if these small things were ignored, life would be both unbeautiful and unbearable. I've been doing periodically some work sitting with people who are near death, hospice work, you might say. And in that mirror of death, of near death, things become so simple. And people look back at their life. Did I love well? Did I love those around me? Did I live fully? Was I really here? In the presence of someone who's dying, there's not much to do. No more emergencies, nothing to fix. It's just holding somebody's hand, being present for the fear or pain or whatever is there, and reminding them and ourselves that it's okay, that it's actually fine, that just as we know how to be born, we also know how to die. The one who knows is that place in us that can hold the sorrows of the world, that remembers this greatness of heart we could call our true nature, our Buddha nature. The one who knows remembers that our task here is not to possess things. We don't possess our children, our lovers, our things. We don't even possess our bodies. We, we rent them. We get to use them for a while from Avis or Hertz or something, and you have to take care of them right? But you can't say, all right, don't grow old, don't change. You know, I own you, you will do what I say. It doesn't work that way. And instead of possessing what happens is the one who knows rests in a selflessness. This is the truth of anatta. Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between these two my life flows. You know, when people do get near death and they look back, they say, wow, what a journey, what a thing I've been through, what a trip. That was an amazing one, and it's gone. I mean, like what happened to the, you know, 1990s, <laughs> 1980s, that century back there, it has simply vanished, it's gone. There's just today, this moment, and all the rest vanishes like a dream. The one who knows there's a kind of innocence, the child of the spirit, that doesn't grasp at life, but lives in the reality of the present. So my daughter, who was helping to videotape the teacher meetings in June with the Dalai Lama and all these other teachers, she said one morning after a day and a half of videotaping the Dalai Lama, she said, you know what's amazing? She said, people will talk to him and." He listens so carefully, and he responds to each person. She said, it's as if he's born anew every moment. She said, I've never seen anybody quite like that. That kind of innocence, the child of the spirit. So the one who knows, sees the world, sees the sorrows and the injustice and the need to respond with compassion, sees the beauty that if we don't recognize, we can't nurture and love. It is that child of the spirit. And the one who knows, the abode of the one who knows is compassion, wakefulness and compassion to see with the eyes of the beloved, to look with the eyes of wonder. You know that story I like to tell of the Dalai Lama when he was in New York offering the teachings of the Kala Chakra. Tantra, which is the highest Tibetan teachings on the wheel of time and the nature of the creation of the universe, and there were five or ten thousand people who came into Madison Square Garden for these teachings, and they had a sand mandala and all those great Tibetan horns and cymbals and chanting and so forth, and this big brocade throne, and the Dalai Lama came in to all this fanfare and walked up and climbed up on this dharma seat on the throne and to make it comfortable underneath the brocade rugs they'd put some mattresses and he sat down and it bounced and he smiled oh and then he bounced again and he smiled more and then in front of five or ten thousand people before giving the highest tantric teachings on the creation of the world and the nature of time and birth and death he just sat there and bounced like a child in the middle of madison square garden The one who knows, it's not so much being involved in all this activity of life, looking for happiness everywhere, looking for love, recognizes it's here, in us. It's here not by grasping, but by letting go, by letting be. To meditate is to come back to this spaciousness, to this mercy and compassion to find that rhythm in the changing seasons of our life, to remember that we can trust, to care for children, to do our work, to support the community and the earth around us and to discover that we can awaken, to discover our heart's capacity to hold all of this earth and honor it all with compassion, to live like the king or queen, when they say, O nobly born, O you who are the son and daughters of the Buddha. The invitation of spiritual life is to remember this, to reclaim this dignity and beauty. And to meditate then is so simple. It's not to make anything happen, but to come back to this wisdom heart, this compassion. Rumi writes, he says, forget your life. Say God is great. You think you know what time it is? It's time to pray, to meditate. Don't knock on any random door like a beggar. Reach your long hand out to another door beyond where you go on the street, the street where everyone says, how are you? And no one says, how aren't you? If you are here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. But if you've opened your loving to the divine love, you're helping people you don't know and have never even seen. Is what I say true? Say yes quickly if you know, if you've known it from before the beginning of the universe. Say yes quickly. So let's sit for a minute. as you sit quietly, just present, breathing, open. Let yourself reflect on what is true in your life that you need to acknowledge and that will bring this great compassion and understanding more fully into your heart. What is true that it's time to see Perhaps reflect as well, if you only had a little time left, this question that we must ask over and over again, if you only had a little time left, what is it really time for you to do? How should you be? Your heart knows when you listen, when you ask. happy to be back and to share this summer evening and to sit together as we have and also to reflect on the Dharma. So next week, the Monday night class for those who come will be up in the retreat meditation hall. And again, there won't be dinner next week. After that, there'll be dinner pretty much every Monday night. Um, and, uh, Drive carefully. For those of you who can help to put the chairs away, appreciate it. Let's do one little chant before we go out the door. Just the the simple sound of ah, that seed syllable to open the heart, let ourselves be where we are, letting go. Ah. Add harmony. Ah, 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 ah. and see you again.